Good morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Jude, or rather the book of James. We were in Jude earlier. I can see that happening a lot in the months to come. The book of James, uh, chapter 2, and I invite you to follow along as I begin reading in verse 14. So in case I've confused you, the book of James, chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so, I invite you to step back with me in time for just a moment. We're going to turn the clock back 500 years and stand at the dawn of the Protestant Reformation. And when we turn the clock back 500 years, we hear the Protestant reformers, the Protestant theologians, we hear them clearly, clarion call, appealing to Paul, especially his epistles to the Romans and the Galatians, appealing to Paul in order to argue, affirm, and defend that justification is by faith alone. There we are 500 years ago. We hear that clearly. That's fine. Now we hear another voice, that of the Roman Catholic Church. And we hear the Catholic theologians, in response to the Protestant theologians, appealing to the book of James. Not Paul's epistles to the Romans or the Galatians, but James' book. The second chapter in particular. And they appeal to James in order to argue 
that justification is by faith plus works. There you have it. The two are at loggerheads. Now we're back in time 500 years. We begin to lean over this way again, give our ear to the Protestant theologians, and we hear them respond to the Catholic theologians by affirming the following. No, hang on. You have misunderstood James. James does not teach that justification is by faith plus works. What James teaches, and in particular what he says in these verses we have just read publicly, is as follows. That there is a difference between true, true faith and false faith. That is all James is saying. James is not teaching, again, as you would suggest, as you would affirm, and as you would defend, that justification is by faith plus our works. That is not his point. He is not contradicting Paul. What Paul says in his epistles to the Romans and the Galatians. James is simply differentiating. He's simply acknowledging that there is such a thing as true faith and there is such a thing as false faith. The Protestants, as they engaged in that argument, they made it clear. Oh, they made it abundantly clear. Oh, the, the, the effort they put into this. And the emphasis they put in the details so that they could explain this with such clarity so as not to be misunderstood. I think we can sum it up in the following statement. Here it is. We aren't justified. This was their point. We aren't justified. By making a profession of faith. Did you just hear what I said? We are not justified by making a profession of faith. We are justified by possessing faith. And where faith is possessed, there will always be fruit. Fruit which demonstrates that the faith is true, as opposed to a false faith which is always fruitless. That is all that James is saying. You know, we hurry on from the Reformation, and we move into the 1600s, and we hear the English Puritans making exactly the same point. By and large, making precisely the same point, affirming we are justified by faith alone, but it is a faith that is never alone. It is a faith that shows itself, demonstrates itself in a fruitful life. They affirmed it clearly. They got it from the reformers. You move into the 1700s. For example, the Great Awakening, this side of the ocean, right? The Great Awakening, the Great Evangelical Revival, the far side of the ocean. And you will hear Howell Harris in Wales. You'll hear Jonathan Edwards here. And you'll hear Whitfield, who goes back and forth umpteen times between the two, affirming the, the, the exact 
same truth. You come into the 1800s, and Andrew Fuller, great Baptist theologian, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, they do not waver perfectly clear in their minds as to how Paul and James are reconciled and what it is these two pillars in the history of the church are affirming. They both affirm we are justified in the sight of God by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it is a faith that brings us into union with the Lord Jesus. It is a faith by which we come, we become one with Christ. Therefore, it is a faith that brings us into life. And where there is life, there will be fruit. If there is no fruit, it can only mean what? There is still death. And if there is still death, guess what? That faith, that profession of faith, must simply be head belief. That is James' point. Now, what happens is this. Steady on, grab something, all right? In the early, mid-1800s, three mistakes. They're already there in evangelical circles. They're already there. They're known under different isms. They're there. But these three mistakes really take hold within the professing church. I mentioned them as we concluded last Sunday morning. I won't dare ask for a show of hands as to whether or not you remember, because guess what? I'm proceeding on the assumption you don't. So here they are, the three again, the three mistakes that took hold within large segments of evangelicalism in the early, mid-1800s were as follows. The first mistake had to do with the object of faith. As a Christian, what am I believing in? All right? The mistake was this. We are justified because we believe gospel promises, such as, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Or we believe in gospel propositions, such as what? Propositional truth. Christ died for sinners. Make no mistake. We must believe these things. Factual truth, promises and propositions. But they are not the formal object of faith. That was the mistake. The formal object of faith is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. That is the invitation of the gospel, if you are not a Christian. The invitation of the gospel, the commandment of God is this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to believe in Christ is to take him to myself and to entrust myself to him whereby I become one with him. You know, those of you who attend here, our members here, you see it all the time. It's called the Lord's Supper. There you have it. His body, there you have it, the bread, the cup, his blood. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. Why institute this feast? Lots of reasons. 
But one of the most fundamental but often forgotten and neglected reasons is what? God is offering objectively his son. He's demonstrating it. He is the object of faith. Believe in him. What does it mean to believe in him? It means to receive him. What does it mean to receive him? It means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. It means to appropriate him. You take him to yourself and you give yourself to him, whereby you become one. He is the object of faith, not a promise and not a proposition. The second fundamental error was this concerning the nature of faith. And the error was and is as follows. We're justified. Because we said we believed at a specific moment of time in the past. That is not true. Faith is not a past momentary transaction that you think you made with God. No, faith is to receive God's gift of his son whereby you come to life. That is why I said earlier, consistent with the reformers and those who stand in that reform tradition, we are not justified by a mere profession of faith. We are justified by possessing faith. The third error was this, and it is what James primarily has in view. It concerns the result of faith and the error that infiltrated and has remained with us, is this. We are justified because we believe, and it does not matter what happens after that. Yes, it does matter. It matters big time. And that is James' point. The flower on the bush. I said this last Sunday. Think of it. Picture it. The flower on the bush. The grape on the vine. The apple on the tree, none of them give life to the plant, but all of them prove that the plant is alive. Those are works. Fruit. Because faith has brought us into union with a living person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And by virtue of that union, we've been transferred from darkness to light. We have moved from death to life. And where there is life, there is, there are flowers and grapes and everything else. There will be fruit. And if there is no fruit, the only reasonable conclusion, and this is James' point, is because there's still death. And if there's still death, I don't really care, this is James' point, what you profess to believe. It obviously is not true faith. It can only be categorized as false faith. Those were three errors that infiltrated the church. They took hold of huge segments of evangelicalism, and they have led to three disastrous results. Do you want them? You're going to get them. Three disastrous results. And we can simply put them all under that expression, easy believism. Easy believism, which is the, the predominant Uh, belief system within evangelicalism today, easy believism. And within that, I just want to mention this net threefold response, an error concerning the object of faith, 
an error concerning the nature of faith and an error concerning the result of faith, easy believism, and easy believism has led firstly to a new category of Christian. We need a new category of Christian because we've got all these fruitless professing believers. And so what do we call them? Carnal Christians. It's a new category. It did not exist in the history of the church until relatively recently because we need to explain a phenomenon. We need to explain all these people who believe and yet it's made no difference in their lives. Well, here's what we'll do. We'll come up with a new classification. They are carnal Christians, meaning they're saved. They'll, they'll find the back door into heaven, but they're simply going to lose out on a bunch of rewards. It's led to this new category, which is not a biblical category. It doesn't exist. Easy believism has led to a new presentation of the gospel. And so in our preaching of the gospel, some of us may have heard this growing up. You may still come across it. You won't come across it here. I pray you'll never come across it here. But in this new presentation of the gospel, this is what you hear. Receive Jesus as your Savior. Your Lord? Well, that can come later. Don't worry about it. Just make him your Savior. We'll talk lordship at a later point. And in so doing, what have they done? They have presented people with a divided Jesus. They have actually pit Jesus against Jesus. Take this part of Jesus, but not this part. And it is a false presentation of the gospel. And easy believism has led, thirdly, to a new understanding of the Christian life, what is known as a two-stage theory of growth. A two-stage theory of growth. Because you see, you get all these people who are, they say they're saved. They've believed They've given mental assent to gospel promises and gospel propositions, but it's never made one iota of difference in their lives. And and so how do we get these people to grow? How do we talk about growth with these people? Well, we come up with the deeper life movement, the victorious life movement, the consecrated life movement, the baptized in the spirit life movement, a two-stage model of Christian growth. Because you've believed, you've been converted, but there's been no growth. Now we have to come up with some sort of category to explain some sort of climactic moment whereby we kind of, I don't know, squeeze growth out of you and present something else to you. And this entire theory, this two-stage, actually, it's actually a three-stage model now, but I won't go down that road. This two-stage model of Christian growth has become commonplace within evangelicalism. Those three characteristics of evangelicalism, a new category of Christian, a new presentation of the gospel, and a new understanding of the Christian life all arise out of easy believism. Easy believism emerges from those three errors concerning the nature of faith. Those three errors concerning the nature of the faith arises from what? That much of the church has completely departed from its Reformation roots. And it's basic, the most basic fundamental understanding of what the gospel actually is and what it means to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Is this serious? I think you've probably guessed by now. It's very serious because it is the difference between heaven and hell. Isn't it? 
uh, many moons ago, uh, my uncle in England took me and my cousin to a, a soccer game between uh, Liverpool and Southampton. And we showed our ticket stubs as we entered the stadium, found our seats. We were all seated nicely, waiting for the match to begin. People showed up in our row, ticket stubs, same row, same seat numbers. So we called over an attendant, and the attendant very nicely said, well, would you all mind coming with me to a room over here where the police were waiting? Big scam going on, selling fake tickets. And my uncle, unbeknown to him, uh, innocent in all this, caught up in this scam. He proved his innocence, and the authorities looked kindly on him, and they actually let us back into the stadium with fake tickets and found seats for us. It's kind of nice. Guess what, though, my friend? Fake faith, false faith, will not get you into heaven. There is no going to heaven if you get this wrong. You're not there. All right? I know that's in your face. It has to be. People must hear this. It is the difference between heaven and hell. True faith versus false faith. How do I know that? Preacher, Stephen, how, how can you be so bold? And forthright in saying such a thing. Well, I do so on good cause. Look at the 14th verse of our text. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? This is an issue, a matter of life and death, heaven and hell. If all you have is head belief and there is no accompanying fruit, can that head belief save you? That is his question. He gives a negative answer. His answer is a resounding, definitely not. And let me demonstrate my answer for, to you by way of two illustrations. Here's the first, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, there he is sitting there half naked, lacking in daily food, starving. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needful for the body. What good is that? Does it do any good? Does it serve any purpose? Does it have any value? No. So what's my conclusion? Verse 17. So also mere head belief by itself if it does not have fruit, is dead. So back to his question at the end of verse 14, can that head belief save him? Can that which is dead save him? The answer is obviously no. You want another illustration? Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You give mental assent. You are very orthodox. You cross all your T's. You dot all your I's. All the punctuation is in the right place. You can explain it all. You do well. Nothing wrong with that. But please understand the following. Even the demons believe. Head belief. They're orthodox. And they even shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? That head belief apart from fruit 
is useless. So can that mere head belief, which you share in common with the demons, can that mere fruitless, dead, lifeless head belief, agreement, assent to promises and propositional truth? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with all that. Can that save you? The answer is no. Do you want me to prove it to you is what James is now saying in verse 20. Do you want to be shown? We'll skip over that next phrase. We're in polite company after all, you foolish person. That head belief apart from fruit is useless. And so now he comes to his proof. Let me prove it. So I just erase any remnant of any shadow of a doubt. And he furnishes two pieces of proof, evidence. The first is unsurprising. Who is it? Abraham. Where else are you going to go? The second is downright shocking. Rahab. More on that in just a moment. You look at his first piece of evidence then, Abraham, starting in verse 21. Was not Abraham, there he is, our father. James is going to appeal to a historical event. The historical event, Moses records it in Genesis 22. It is a pivotal moment in Abraham's sojourn. You know it. Even if you have not darkened the door of a church for a long time, I'm sure you know this story. And in this narrative, as we go back and we read Genesis 22, we discover that God commands Abraham. He decides he's going to test Abraham's faith, not for his own good, but for Abraham's good. And he commands Abraham to take his son, his only son, his beloved son, Isaac, the son whom you love, the apple of your eye. And you're going to go to a mountain I'm going to show you, and there you're going to offer him up on an altar to me. There it is, the test. Now, you know what happens. Abraham is willing to obey. Off he goes. The knife is drawn. God speaks again. Do not harm the lad. For now I know that you fear me. That is the event in Genesis 22 that James has in mind. He makes three points. This is his proof, his proof text. He makes three points in this proof to make sure his readers, us by extension, don't miss what it is exactly he's saying. The first point is this. At that moment, Genesis 22, what does he say right there in the middle of verse uh, 21? At that moment, our father Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Now, steady. What does James mean by faith? He means head belief. What does he mean by works? He means fruit. What does he mean by justified? Now, check your assumptions at the door. What does he mean by justified? The word justified in the New Testament has one of two meanings. There is a legal justification and there is a demonstrative justification. Another word for that, justified, is approved. When Paul uses the word justified in his epistles, what's he thinking of? How is he using that word? In its legal sense, to be justified in the sight of God is to be acquitted. 
It is to be forgiven our sins. Forgiven our sins, why? Because God has imputed them in full to Jesus Christ and he has borne them and their accompanying penalty in full upon Calvary's cross. And now because I am one with him through faith, God now reckons the perfect righteousness of Christ to me and he declares me to be just in his sight. That is how Paul uses the word. That is not how James is using the word. What does James mean by the word? He simply means approved. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father approved by fruit when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? The second point he makes in there comes out in verse 22. Faith, that is Abraham's faith, right at the end of verse 22, was completed by his works. You see, his head belief was given legs shown that it really wasn't mere head belief because he actually acted on it. And when God revealed his will to him, Abraham was willing to deny his own self-interest. And because he was compelled by love for God and fear of God, he was willing to obey. And so his faith was completed, shown to be true faith. And the third point he makes in verse 25 is this. The scripture was fulfilled. So did you get the three? Abraham was justified by works. Faith was completed. The scripture was fulfilled. And for me, this is the big aha moment. Now James cites out of Genesis 15 verse 6, the scripture that was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. That's Genesis 15. So when was Abraham justified in a legal sense? He just told us. When? As far as James is concerned. Genesis 15. When God gave his promise, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him credited to him, reckoned to him, imputed to him as righteousness. Well, seven chapters later, Genesis 22, when Abraham was willing to offer his son Isaac upon the altar, that scripture way back in Genesis 15, 6 was fulfilled, meaning it was clearly manifested. Meaning what? Oh, Abraham's faith. That faith by which he was justified legally was proven to be real. It was clearly manifested when Abraham himself was willing to deny all, submit himself to his heavenly father, obey his great God's command by offering up to him that which was most precious in his sight. His fruit demonstrated the reality of his faith. He was justified in Genesis 22 at that moment, meaning he was approved by his works. There's your first example. What is James' conclusion in verse 24? You see that a person is justified. He is approved by fruit and not by head belief. If I could put it in the vernacular, it's simply this. I don't care what you say. That's James' point. 
I do not care what you profess to believe. The only way I know you really believe is through fruit. And it is through fruit that you are approved to be the reality of your faith is approved in the sight of God. And now it just becomes simply shocking. James furnishes a second evidence. Her name is Rahab. No longer Abraham, the great patriarch, the great father of the faithful. But now we have Rahab, three strikes against her. My apologies, ladies, but the first strike in that day, that age was what? She's a woman. There's the first strike. The second strike is what? She's a downright heathen. She's a Canaanite. Doesn't get any more despicable than that. And the third strike, James has to mention it. He inserts it in the text. She is a harlot. She is a prostitute. But guess what? In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified, approved by works, fruit, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? That is not when she was justified in a legal sense. She was justified much earlier. I mean, she tells the spies that herself in not so many words. It's recorded in the book of Joshua, chapter 2. And she tells them why she is helping them. And it's pretty simple. She declares the following. As soon as we, my fellow Canaanites, heard it, heard the reports, heard the reports of what your God did to the Egyptians, heard the reports of, as you drew near, what your God did to the Amorites, As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted collectively, the entire populace of the city. But then what does she say? For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And she goes on to add, I know, I know, I know that the Lord has given you this land. She's a believer. She believes it. It is not mere head belief which she shares in common with the other citizens of her city. They all tremble. They're all terrified. They all hear the report. They all believe. They're believers, the report. They know it's true. They know who this God is. But she sets herself apart. It isn't mere head belief. How do we know it isn't mere head belief? Because when push comes to shove, she is justified, approved by her fruit. Her fruit demonstrates the reality of her faith, that it is true faith and not false faith. Why? Because when the spies come to her, she is ready to risk all. Think about it. Have you ever thought about this? What would they have done to that woman if they had discovered her complicity in aiding and enabling those spies to escape? What would they have done to her? She knew what they would do to her. And yet she is prepared to sacrifice all. She is prepared to deny self. Why? Because she is a believer. The difference between true faith and false faith. And therefore, just like Abraham, she was justified. That is approved by fruit. Verse 25, when she received the messengers, 
and sent them out by another way. James draws his conclusion. It's obvious. For as the body apart from the spirit, the breath is dead, so also head belief. Let's just bring it all to a head, a climax. So also head belief apart from fruit is dead. Now the entire text, I said last week we were going to dive in. We did that. We jumped in head first. Verse 14, we've, you know, been underwater the entire length of the pool. We've now emerged at the other end. And I pray we can look back and there is far greater clarity now as to what James is saying and not saying. As we catch our breath, as we come out of the text, I mean, what James says here begs the obvious question. And it is simply this. Well, how can I be sure my faith is real? How can I be sure my faith is true faith as opposed to to this false faith, which he he has attacked vehemently in these verses? Now get this, please. From Abraham and Rahab, we learn the answer. That's why these examples, these proofs, these evidences are so effectual and so powerful. The question, how can I be sure? How can I be certain my faith is true? My faith is real. From Abraham and Rahab, what James has said specifically in these verses, we learn the answer. And the answer is this, self-denial. And the answer should not shock us because James learned it from his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself declared, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is real faith. There is true faith. There is faith that is alive. There is faith that is fruitful. There is faith that has really brought us into union with the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby we now have this spiritual sense, not merely of gospel promises and propositions. Yeah, 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 I know that. I get that. I believe that. Sure. Yeah. No, 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 no. Now we see the beauty and the glory and the excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ to such a degree that we are willing to deny self. Oh, that is when our faith is approved. It is approved. It is justified. As since James is using it, it is justified by this fruit, whereby we are willing to deny self, take up our cross, and follow him. It leads me to ask some obvious questions. Have I ever mortified a sin for Christ? I mean, really got after it. I'm not asking if I'm being victorious over that sin and it's completely gone. I'm asking, am I at least engaged in the battle whereby I am mortifying that bosom sin? Begs me to ask, have I ever carried a cross for Christ? 
willingly embraced and picked up and carried something unpleasant that I'd rather not do. Goes against the grain. But I'm doing this for Christ's sake. Have I ever sacrificed a comfort for Christ? Have I ever endured a trial for Christ? Have I ever cultivated a grace for Christ? Those are probing questions. The reformers, going back to the reformers, they understood it. Oh, they were so, so clear on this. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through faith. Faith is the hand we reach out and we receive. We receive, we receive, we receive. That's all we're doing. We are receiving Christ. We are taking Christ to ourselves, becoming one with him. And because we're one with him, we get everything that he purchased on our behalf by virtue of his life, his death, and his resurrection. We simply receive it. Oh, but you see, this faith whereby we take Christ to ourselves, And by the Spirit's work, we now have this heightened appreciation of His glory, His beauty, His excellency. Begets what? Births what? Love. We love Him. And so as you see, faith leads to love. It's not in love. It's not part of love. Faith is simply the reception, the hand going out. I receive the Lord Jesus. I'm taking Him to myself. I'm resting and trusting fully in him. Oh, but having received him. Oh, Edwards. Edwards used the word repeatedly. What was the word Edwards used? Relish. A holy relish of his glory and his beauty. And now loving him. What does love lead to? Well, I want to, I want to please the one I love far above all else. Which is what? Obedience. Which in James's terminology is what? Works or fruit. Faith begetting love. Love begetting obedience. Yes, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Oh, I pray this is clear in our minds. Again, appealing to the reformers. They articulated this. Their heirs articulated this faithfully. I'm thinking of Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in particular, and of an illustration he, uh, illustration he used in, in one of his sermons. Actually, I think I've seen it in a couple of his sermons. And he speaks of this scene. It's somewhat, somewhat horrific. Is it, if this is upsetting, just put it, put it aside and focus on, on the point. But Spurgeon, he, he, he's preaching to his congregation there, a metropolitan tabernacle, and, and, and he beseeches them. Imagine a small child, nine, ten years of age, and there she is trapped in the burning building, second floor, third floor. And there's no way to make it to the exit. Flames, the building is engulfed in flames, and she cannot get out. She is standing there at the, the open, broken window calling for help. The fire brigade arrives, and there they are, these sturdy men. Um, but they're not in the truck with the ladder. They don't have the ladder to reach her. They cannot enter the building. They call up to her, jump 
and we'll catch you. Jump, we'll catch you. All right. The little girl hears them. Here's what they're saying. Little girl, jump, we'll catch you. It's a promise. She understands the promise. She understands it mentally. Is she saved? Is she saved by merely understanding? No. She then thinks to herself, you know, they're all about 200 pounds. Four or five of them. I'm not really that high. They're trained for this. They know what they're doing. I agree that if I were to jump, they would catch me and I'd walk away from this. No problem. She agrees. Is she saved? No. You see, knowledge is not saving faith alone. Assent. Agreeing. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for me. I agree with that. I'm a Christian going to heaven. That does not save you. What must the little girl do? She jumps. And what is that? That is trust. That is confidence. That is commitment. That is putting it all on the line. There is no turning back. There is understanding. Yes, I know who the Lord, I understand who the Lord Jesus is. Oh, here in the Bible Belt, we understand, don't we? I know who he is. I've heard the stories. Grandma's told me a hundred times. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows he died for sinners. I agree with that. Yes. And I even said a prayer to that effect when I was seven years old. I believe. It's not the question. That can merely be false faith. Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ? Have you taken him to yourself and have you entrusted yourself to him? Do you believe in a living person, the Lord Jesus Christ? And in believing in him, have you come to life? If you have, my friend, there will be fruit. That's all there is to it. That fruit will not save you. That fruit is not the reason he died for you. That fruit is not the reason he loves you. That fruit is not the reason he forgives you. That fruit is not the reason he justifies you. That fruit is not in any way the cause of anything he does or ever will do for you. It's simply the demonstration that you're alive. You've come to life. And you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that's everyone in this room. I'm under no illusion it isn't everyone in this room. I pray we really get it, friends. I pray we really get it. And we understand that great reformational truth, what it is to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we hear James's small little voice in the back of our heads, but just, that's not a faith that is alone. That isn't some dead Empty mental assent to truth. No, that is faith by which you have become one with Jesus Christ. And a faith by virtue of that union, you have come to life. And now you are justified, approved, because the fruit, the works, demonstrate the reality of your faith. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm not going to ask anybody to walk the aisle. I am going to ask you to ponder these things and think deeply on these things. 
And hear the Father's command to you. It is to believe in His Son. It is to receive His Son. It is to understand and perceive the stores of mercy and grace that wash over the penitent sinner who simply receives His Son. Our Father, we pray this simple prayer on behalf of of those in our midst who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, we pray simply that you would be merciful and that you would give knowledge where there is confusion, that you would give assent and agreement where there is stubbornness and hardness of heart, and above all else, that you would give trust and a closing with Christ where there is callousness and hardness and indifference and apathy. We do ask this, our Father, so that your name might be hallowed among us, your name glorified in our midst. And we ask it in that name that is above all others, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.